you take your Bibles and turn to Isaiah chapter 59 this morning? We're in Isaiah 59, working our way through. We are um, probably six or seven weeks from finishing the book of Isaiah. Now, I know some of you didn't think that would ever happen, but we are getting there uh, as we work through chapter by chapter the book of Isaiah. I have friends of mine who are you know, pastors in other churches, and they said, George, how long are you going to work through Isaiah? And I'm like, till we finish it. That's about how long we're going to do it. Is he, are you going to do all 66 chapters? I'm like, well, how do you not do all 66 chapters? Um, but that's where we are. So within this, Isaiah chapter 59, there are several places that you see that the Apostle, the Apostle Paul actually uses the language in Isaiah 59, and he brings it into the New Testament. Uh, specifically, in verses 7, 8, and 9, he brings it into Romans chapter 3, and that's what Blake read in the New Testament reading today. But then he also, um, many of you are uh, very familiar with the, um, the armor of God in Ephesians chapter 6, right? And you think about you know, the helmet of salvation, the breastplate of righteousness, the shoes fitted with the readiness of the gospel, the belt of truth, the shield of faith, and the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. We think about that. And, and, and sometimes in Sunday school, it's actually fun because the kids end up uh, making all those bits of armor out of paper. Uh, we don't have any um, uh, you know, uh, smiths anymore. Uh, but we, and they'll come around and they're like, yeah, we're, we're girded up for battle, right? Well, where does Paul take that image from? He actually takes it from Isaiah chapter 59 as he speaks about the Lord putting on the breastplate of righteousness. You know, he, we see the armor of God being placed upon the, the redeemer of God. And so Paul takes that language and picks it up in Isaiah 50 or in Ephesians 6 from Isaiah 59 speaking about the war that we are meant to be in against sin. But not just against sin, but also the devil, the world, and the flesh. You know, we think that oftentimes that we are against the world, and when we just think that the world is what we're against, we're missing out that, that also the devil has schemes and, and our flesh that resides within us, that you know, we, we, we have a yearning and an inclination towards sin, and so we're called to war and battle. So in the midst of this particular chapter, you're going to read different parts. And so let, let me set it up for you. The first couple of verses talk about uh, the idea of, like, does God even care? Is he listening and is he able to save? Then we get into a section from about verse 3 all the way down to about verse 16 that talks about the wickedness of the day. The wickedness of the day. And again, Isaiah is, is um, forward thinking now. He's speaking to uh, the people of Judah who he knows will one day be in exile in Babylon. And what's happening is if you're in exile in Babylon, Babylon, depending on, on your, your level of, of you know, acclamation to Babylon, Babylon can seem pretty great. You know, the Hanging Gardens, you know, I mean, the, the Hanging Gardens of Babylon, it's, 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 a, it's a fairly safe place. And so you can sort of get wrapped up into the world and you can begin to leave God behind and his ways behind and begin to rationalize a little bit of error in, in your life. Meaning that you can begin to twist and bend and distort the word of God and the rules of God, the laws of God, the ordinances of God, the statutes of God to make your life easier. And what happens is, is we, as we begin to bend and twist and rationalize our own sinfulness in the midst of this, then we become what the world would say is wicked you know, or, or really like them. Actually, the, the scriptures would say we're wicked. Um, the world would say, you're great. <laughs> the world says, hey, embrace the wickedness 
of what we believe. So that's where we are. And then we find that um, at the end of Isaiah 59, um, the Lord says, I'm looking around. I'm looking around for someone who believes, and I can't find one. I can't find any person who can save, so I guess I'm going to have to do it myself. And that's sort of this foreshadowing of Jesus, that the God-man coming down and saving us from all of our sins because we are incapable of saving ourselves. That's where we are. So, having said that, I'm going to let you stay seated today uh, for Isaiah 59. We're going to read all of verses uh, 1 through 21. Hear the word of the Lord. Behold, the Lord's hand is not shortened that it cannot save, or his ear dull that it cannot hear. But your iniquities have made a separation between you and your God, and your sins have hidden his face from you so that he he does not hear. For your hands are defiled with blood, and your fingers with iniquity. Your lips have spoken lies. Your tongue mutters wickedness. No one enters suit justly. No one goes to law honestly. They rely on empty pleas. They speak lies. They conceive mischief and give birth to iniquity. They hatch adder's eggs. They weave the spider's web. He who eats their eggs dies, and from one that is crushed a viper is hatched. Their webs will not serve as clothing. Men will not cover themselves with what they make. Their works are works of iniquity, and deeds of violence are in their hands. Their feet run to evil, and they are swift to shed innocent blood. Their thoughts are thoughts of iniquity. Desolation and destruction are in their highways. The way of peace they do not know. And there is no justice in their paths. They have made their roads crooked. No one who treads on them knows peace. Therefore, justice is far from us, and righteousness does not overtake us. We hope for light and behold darkness, and for brightness, but we walk in gloom. We grope for the wall like the blind. We grope like those who have no eyes. We stumble at noon as in the twilight. Among those in full vigor, we are like dead men. We all growl like bears. We moan and moan like doves. We hope for justice, but there is none. For salvation, but it is far from us. For our transgressions are multiplied before you, and our sins testify against us. For our transgressions are with us, and we know our iniquities transgressing and denying the Lord and turning back from following our God, speaking oppression and revolt, conceiving and uttering from the heart lying words. Justice is turned back and righteousness stands far away, for truth has stumbled in the public squares and uprightness cannot enter. Truth is lacking, and he who departs from evil makes himself a prey. The Lord saw it, and it displeased him that there was no justice. He saw that there was no man and wondered that there was no one to intercede. Then his own arm brought him salvation, and his righteousness upheld him. He put on righteousness as a breastplate and a helmet of salvation on his head. He put on garments of vengeance for clothing and wrapped himself in zeal as a cloak. According to their deeds, so will he repay. Wrath to his adversaries, repayment to his enemies, to the coastlands he will render repayment. So they shall fear the name of the Lord from the west and his glory from the rising of the sun. For he will come like a rushing stream which the wind of the Lord drives and a redeemer will come to Zion, to those in Jacob who turn from transgression, declares the Lord. And as for me, this is my covenant with them, says the Lord. My spirit that is upon you and my words that I have put in your mouth shall not depart out of your mouth or out of the mouth of your offspring, or out of the mouth of your children's offspring, says the Lord, 
from this time forth and forevermore. May God add his blessing to the reading of his word. So here's where we are. In the first two verses, uh, we read about this. We read about people who are living in Babylon. And in the midst of living in Babylon, they're saying, you know, we, we are not in Jerusalem anymore. We are not around the people of God. We are not able to do what we're called to do by God. And we recognize some of the wickedness and some of the problems in our world. And, and the question becomes, you know, is God's arm too short to save? Is the Lord's hand not shortened that it cannot save? Or if he is able to save, is he, if he is able to save us, if he is good and will do good and he is powerful, then maybe is his ear dull? Is his ear dull that it cannot hear? So the question arises in the midst of the people of God, in the midst of this, and, and quite frankly, I think that there are times in our lives you know, that we ask the question, does God hear is he able, is he good, and will he give us good? I think all of us are there at different times. When you are struggling, when you have a loved one that is struggling with an illness, you cry out and say, Lord, do, do you hear me? Do you care? What's going on? Lord, I I know the scriptures say that you are going to work things for your glory and my good, but I don't see how you can work these things out in this way. I don't get it. I think we, we all find ourselves, if you haven't found yourself there, you will. <laughs> um, and so where do we run to? We run to the rock of our salvation. We run to the truth that we have. Now, in this particular place, you know, one of the things that we see is that in verse 2, and I, and I don't think many of the times we, we think about this, but, and I'm not trying to attribute like, the problems that we have to our own sin, um, but he's saying that there is a sense in which uh, the people of Babylon have assimilated and acclimated into the culture in such a way that, um, that their children, for example, are no longer walking with the Lord. I cannot tell you how often um, the prayer requests that I receive is is oftentimes for the, the, the children and the grandchildren of people who love Jesus. And they go, I long to see my children walk with the Lord. Like, that's what I want. More so than any other prayer, sort of this, this prayer you know, that, I'm, that just bubbles to the surface all over again is, I long to see my children and my grandchildren walk with the Lord, that there will be a legacy of faith, that I will see them forever in glory. And yet... Um, they go, but Lord, is your hand too short that you can't save them or your ear too dull? And I think that there is a sense in which um, there is this idea that we have allowed ourselves to be acclimated to the world, that we have put worldly priorities in place of godly priorities, and that we have uh, valued the things of the world rather than value the things of God. And here's the deal, is when Christians... You know, are raising up children, children observe everything that you do. Everything. How do you spend your time? Where do you go? What do you love? And so are we valuing the things of God, or are we valuing the things of the world? And there have been times where I've seen families who have, who have come and said, 
you know, I don't know what happened. Why are our children now walking away from the church, away from a relationship with the Lord? And, and what they've done is they have raised their children up to make church and, and the Lord, Yahweh, or Jesus, you know, secondary in the midst of their lives. And so what their children are doing is rather than making Jesus secondary, they're saying, well, if Jesus isn't primary, then let's make him secondary, let's make him tertiary. That's no big deal. I mean, one of the areas I see this, and I'm going to offend people now, but it's what I was called to do, right? You guys pay me to offend people uh, a little bit, right? You know, like travel sports on Sundays? Are from, I almost think they're demonic at this point. I think they're wicked. Because what they do is they take away children from the body of Christ. And parents, I've heard parents, godly men and women say this, you know, it's not that big a deal that they miss church. It's only for a season, And I'm like, yeah, but you're communicating values to your children. You're communicating values. What do you care about? Like when you go to bed on Sunday night, is the best thing that happened on Sunday the worship of God with the people of God and the fellowship with the people of God in the midst of the church? Or is it soccer or baseball or something else? And so we communicate these values. And then parents will go, well, I don't know why my, my children don't think that the church is valuable. It's like, because you have taught them that the church is not valuable, that Jesus is, is sort of optional, right? So there's this idea that in verse 2 it says, but your iniquities have made a separation between you and your God, and your sins have hidden his face from you so that he does not hear. Now, now there, there's, he gets into verse 3 through you know, 8, really sort of embody this idea of what is going on here and and, and the, um, the real likelihood is, you know, our, our sinfulness does create a separation between us and God. And the question is, are we as the people of God allowing worldly values to blind us to what God says is true? I mean, notice what he says here. He says, for your hands are defiled with blood and your fingers with iniquity. Your lips have spoken lies, your tongue mutters wickedness. Now, I don't think that that's our goal right? Like, I don't think that we wake up in the morning and go, whose blood can I have on my fingers? And, and how many lies can I say? At least I hope it's not, okay? You know what I mean? Like, that's, I don't think we wake up like that, but I think that we, we fall and we slide into error and into sinfulness. No one enters suit justly. Now, we're talking about the law courts in verse 4, that, that people are trying to take the law, and, and again, we're talking about a righteous law here, and we're trying to, trying to take the, the law and we try to twist it so that we can get out from underneath the law, right? So rather than um, abide by what is godly, we take the law and we begin to twist it and say, you know, but I don't think God really meant it this way. Or, you know, culturally, think about this. There are laws on the books that, that lawyers get paid handsomely to work around. And, and don't you feel today, just in a little bit, just a little bit that, that, that people who are wealthier have the ability to hire smarter lawyers to twist, bend, distort, and get around the law. Like if you're in jail, you probably don't want, you know, or you're thinking this way, I probably don't want a public defender coming to defend me. Maybe that's just because you know, TV and whatever, right? But there's a sense in which we want the best because we want them to bend and twist and work around so that we can get out from underneath it. I mean, there's a book called Just Mercy, you know, that was put out. It became a movie. It's a great book, talking about the death penalty 
in some of the southern states and some of the racial inequality that we have seen in the last you know, 50 or 60 years. I mean, uh, especially with regard to the death penalty in some of the southern states. Um, and you look at that and you go, this is wicked. Like, this is a terrible thing that has occurred. So in verse 4, it says, no one enters suit justly, no one goes to law honestly. You know, and as a matter of fact, they hatch adder's eggs. Now, these are vipers. These are, these are snakes. So they're, they're actually laying um, or hatching adder's eggs. They weave the spider's web. Now, that is never, you know, you are never meant to be called a spider. I don't think anywhere in the Old Testament, New Testament, when somebody calls you a spider, you know, and now maybe you went to the University of Richmond, you know, but other than that, you know, and Susan LaPresse not here today, otherwise I'd give her grief about that. Um, but, but a spider is a pejorative term. It means that you are, you are spinning your web and you're trying to get everything else to be caught up in your web so that you can suck the blood out of whatever you catch in your web, right? I mean, despite you know, Charlotte's web, you know, it's not that great. Spiders are not good. As a matter of fact, it says in verse 6, their webs will not serve as clothing. Men will not cover themselves with what they make. So there is this attempt of, of their own web and weaving that they're weaving themselves sort of their clothing out of spiders' webs, saying, look at my righteousness, and you look at the righteousness, and it doesn't cover them at all. I mean, it, it, it's a joke, right? I mean, it's, it, it's a joke saying, like, I'm going to cover myself with a fishnet stocking, and that's what I'm covering myself with, right? Like, there's no protection, there's no coverage, there's no warmth. And, it, and it's saying that these things are actually, you're keeping us from the Lord. Now, in verse 7 and 8, you know, this is actually what is to- talked about in Romans chapter 3, um, where it says, Their feet run to evil, and they are swift to shed innocent blood. Their thoughts are thoughts of iniquity. Desolation and destruction are in their highways. The way of peace they do not know, and there is no justice in their past. They've made their roads crooked. Now, with regard to Romans chapter 3, verses 15 and 17, 15 through 17 is, is where we find ourselves in Romans, what we find is that there's this idea that the people of God you know, are, are struggling, you know, Jews and Gentiles is what we're talking about there, right? And so the Jews thought that there was, um, they could just you know, be born into and not really worry about following the laws of God. And because of that, they had acclimated into society and had broken the law of God and had twisted and distorted these things. And so the question becomes, as a church and, and, and as an individual, have we allowed the culture to influence us in a way that allows us to, to make allowances for sin in our lives? And then do we justify it? Let me, let me give you an example. Um, let me give you an example out of um, the, the book that um, Rob is going to be using. It's called Confronting Injustice Without Compromising Truth by Thaddeus Williams. Um, as I'm reading through this book, I, I read this book about this man named uh, Suresh. And Suresh uh, was born in Nepal, okay? Listen to this story. This is his own story. He says, I was born into a destitute Dalit family in the Gorkha district of Nepal in 1979. A Dalit is known as an Ukut, or an untouchable, a term invented to humiliate the downtrodden. Though the Nepal government has recently declared caste-based discrimination a crime, the Dalit community still strives for dignity. When I was growing up, children from the higher caste were told not to befriend Dalits like me. If they happened to play with us, they had to be sprinkled with gold-touched water to purify them from our Dalit defilement. I had to bow down to Hindu gods and goddesses from outside the temples where non-Dalits worshipped freely. 
in restaurants, I had to wash my own plates because no one would dare wash a delete's dishes. Think about that. Even dogs are allowed to enter the houses of the upper caste, but not delete's. We are treated as subhuman. In the summer of 1999, I had a breakthrough at the Monkey Temple in Kathmandu. I met a Biola University theology student on a mission trip. We walked the temple steps for hours talking about the differences between grace-based Christianity and karma and caste-based Hinduism. At last, a truly humanizing way to see my identity. That night, I accepted Jesus as my Savior. I found a dignity in the eyes of my Creator who didn't see me as untouchable, but reached down to love me, embrace me as His Son, and offer me every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. Jesus welcomes us regardless of our social status or religious performance. I wish I could say my last 20 years as a Christian have ended my experience of caste-based discrimination. My dream of being treated with dignity as an image bearer of God is still a far cry in uh, Nepali society. I live in a small flat in Kathmandu, and my wife and children where we would be swiftly evicted if our landlords discovered that we were all delete or untouchable. We train our children to hide their caste membership. What is truly scandalous, and this is the part that I think that I, I think this is why I'm reading the story, okay? What is truly scandalous is that the Nepali churches are no different. Many churches ask attendees to identify their caste. When they find out we are deletes, attitudes change dramatically. We hear propaganda even within the church that people of lower caste have lower intellectual ability. Within the church! It makes no difference that I recently earned a master's degree in theology and plan to embark on PhD studies to better serve the church. It only matters that you are untouchable, which disqualifies you from church leadership. As a result, the elites are compelled to either hide their identities or start their own churches. Instead of mirroring Jesus who loves every tongue, tribe, and nation, the church has simply gone with the flow of Nepal's caste-based discrimination. Many Nepali Christians were formerly Hindus, but still have Hindu hearts toward their brothers and sisters in Christ. How sad is that? I mean, you want to talk about, you know, justice and injustice. And, and we have to ask ourselves, does the church allow, and again, I don't think that we're allowing a caste-based system of discrimination into our, into our midst, but... But within the church in America, when people walk in the doors, do we make snap judgments about who they are, where they're coming from, and their level of education or prowess? I mean, do we do that? Now, I hope you don't, right? I hope you don't. But, I, but I've seen that occur. I've seen that occur in, in America. And we have to say, how have we allowed the prejudices or the, or the thoughts of, of the world to seep into and eradicate or disfigure the love of God in Christ Jesus, our Lord. And how does the gospel tear down the caste differences and the socioeconomic and the the educational differences of all that's going on? How do we see that? Um, What we find is that, you know, in the midst of verse 9, this is therefore, you know, Justice is far from us, and righteousness does not overtake us. We hope for light, and behold, darkness, and for brightness, but we walk in gloom. We grope for the wall like the blind. We grope like those who have no eyes. 
We stumble at noon as in the twilight. You know, there are times when um, I'll come in the side door over here, and because the side door is not attached to any of the lights, I will just assume that I know where everything is. You shouldn't assume things. There's, there's, there's a little moniker about that. But about you know, maybe six months ago, I came in and I was like, oh, I'm good. And so I, I know to walk as close to the wall as I can, but for some reason, some saint had placed a, a chair uh, along the wall. And as I was walking, I stumbled into it and I you know, ran my, my shin into a couple things and I almost fell over. Um, but because I'm agile and athletic like a cat, I didn't fall. I don't know why y'all are laughing. Um, but I... That's what we're describing there. We're walking around in darkness, and we're hoping that we can find justice. We hope that we can find righteousness. And in verse 12, it says that there's actually this confession, because when we recognize that, yeah, I do have you know, the way of the wicked, or, or I allow the world's values to seep into my life and the way that I treat others and the way that I raise my children, for our transgressions are multiplied before you and our sins testify against us. For our transgressions are with us and we know our iniquities. You know, I, I pray that we would know that. I pray that we would have a, an understanding. I pray that the Holy Spirit would be working in us in such a way that we would actually know our sins so that then we can actually confess our sins. You know, it was a, um, back in you know, Isaiah 55, I talked about what does true repentance look like. You know, and, and real briefly, it's that we understand our sin. It's that we um, you know, uh, confess confess our sin, it's that we turn away from our sin, and it's that we hate our sin. You know, it's that we do all of those things, but that's understanding that what we're doing is wrong. But, but we have to recognize that the world is um, flowing against Christians, right? Like if we're, we're salmon flowing, swimming upstream at this point. I mean, when we think about sort of, the, and, and we see this too, Look at verse 15. I mean, this is a, a stark verse here, right in Isaiah 59. Think about this. Truth is lacking, and he who departs from evil makes himself a prey. Did you get that? So that, so that truth is lacking, so that there's, there's a, an absence of truth within our world, within our culture, within the media, within the news, all of those things, right? And that, that what happens is, and when you depart from evil... When you depart from the iniquity, you actually become prey to the world. You get that? So that when you turn your back to evil, now evil will try to devour you. That's, um, you know, and in, in, in John Mark Comer, he has a, a book called Live No Lies. And his paradigm is this. He says that, that deceptive ideas, you know, that, that Satan oftentimes places within us, they, they play to disordered desires that we have within our flesh working themselves out, which then are normalized in a sinful society. Did you get that? So that, that our deceptive ideas that, are, that play to disordered desires that are normalized in a sinful society. I mean, think about that. You know, think about the deceptive ideas of the LGBTQ agenda um, or... The, the, the skewed sexual ethic of our day. Deceptive ideas that play to disordered desires that are then normalized in a sinful society. Let me, um, he, he likens this to, and he says one of the most deceptive things that we see is this idea of, he calls it, um, he differentiates between hard power and soft power within our lives, right? 
So hard power, this is how he says, hard power eventually sparks a backlash, as um, Foucault said. Where there is power, there is resistance. People push people too hard and they inevitably push back. And, and he's speaking there, you know, like of communism, you know, like of Pol Pot, of Stalin, of, of Hitler, that kind of thing. That's hard power pushing against us, right? But then he says something about what he calls soft power. This is what he says about soft power. He says, but soft power is a different beast. It's the ability to shape the preferences of others and the ability to attract. Hollywood is the epitome of soft power. It's done more to change Western moorings around sex, divorce, adultery, vulgar speech, and consumerism than most anything simply by making movies that are fun to watch. Another example of soft power is the advertising industry, which is an attempt to control our behavior not through coercion, but consumerism, simply by appealing to our desires. The cultural analysis uh, analyst, uh, analyst uh, Rod Dreher called the emerging culture of the West a soft totalitarianism. That's interesting, a soft totalitarianism. And wrote, this totalitarianism won't look like the, like the USSR. It's not establishing itself through hard means like armed revolution or enforcing itself with gulags. Rather, it exercises control, at least initially, in soft forms. The totalitarianism is therapeutic. It masks its hatred of dissenters from its utopian ideology ideology, in the guise of helping and healing. For followers of Jesus and the democratic West, soft power is the far greater threat. It's subtle, yes, but corrosive. It eats away at your heart, appealing to your flesh until you wake up one day and realize, dang, I've been colonized. Every follower of Jesus in every culture has to constantly ask the question, in what ways have I been assimilated into the host culture? Where have I drifted from my identity and inheritance? The temptation for us in the West is less to atheism and more to a do-it-yourself faith that's a mix of the way of Jesus, consumerism, secular sex ethics, and radical individualism all of which brings us full circle to Jesus as the revealer of reality. So I think that's true. That subtly and, 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 and with this, this very alluring culture, again, deceptive ideas that play to disordered desires that are then normalized in a sinful society. And, and really, we become prey when we depart from evil. Um. I mean, sin is very alluring. Um, there, there's a show that I like to watch, and I was talking to Scott Harris about this. It's Life Below Zero. I don't know if you guys have ever seen this. It's on like Disney. You know, it's about how people live in Alaska and like the frozen tundra and everything else to it. Um, I'm not endorsing the show, but it's, it's pretty good. It's a good show to fall asleep to because uh, basically the same episode happens over and over again for about 13 seasons or whatever. But, but there's this, this one guy, this one young guy early on, and, and what he's doing is he's trapping small animals in order to, you know, eat them, right? I mean, it's a subsistence lifestyle, and it's fascinating. And so you're like, how does this guy trap these white hares, these, these rabbits, you know, in the snow, right? And so he finds, you know, these trails that he thinks that they'll be near, and he takes, a, you know, he takes this, this, this string uh, trap, and he, and he places this string trap underneath um, sort of this, this tree and this bait, 
And he, and, he, and he sets it up in such a way that there's only one way in to get the bait. And as he goes in to get the bait, and as they reach up to get the bait, that's when they get snared. And I'm watching this, and I'm thinking, this guy is so smart, and he's using it because he has to use this in order to eat. But I'm watching this, and I'm like, wow, so this rabbit, this white rabbit, is only allowed to get the bait if he only goes in this one way, and if he reaches up, and if he reaches up to get it, he's going to be snared. And once he's snared, he cannot get away from the snare unless maybe he gnaws his hand off or something, right? And I look at that and I go, man, that is what Satan does to the people of God. He attracts us with the bait and says, this will bring you momentary joy, this will bring you happiness, This will bring you joy. And the moment that the people of God go in the one way he wants us to go and we grab onto it, we are snared. And we don't even know it. You know, I think about that. that, um, And that he is so smart. That he is so smart to be able to allure us in. Where are we allowing um, the iniquity or the the assimilation of our, our culture into our lives. Well, in the midst of this, I mean, we can feel kind of bad about this. Like, and, and, and I do want you to ask yourself the question, where have I allowed cultural influence to dictate what I believe? Or, and, and one of the ways that you can do this is this, is, is when you get to Scripture and you go, God doesn't really believe that, right? Or, I don't really have to do this, Right? I mean, certainly there's some cultural you know, issues going on back there, so I don't really need to abide by these things. If you start thinking that way, then you have already taken the bait and you're caught in the snare. Now, there's good news, though, brothers and sisters. There's good news. You know, in verse 16, you know, this, is, this is the Lord, this is Isaiah speaking about the Lord. He says, he, he saw that there was no man and wondered was there, that there was no one to intercede. So the Lord is looking, I mean, maybe he's like a Marine Corps recruiter. He's looking for a few good men. The problem is he couldn't find any. He couldn't find a single one. He saw that there was no man and wondered, was there no one to intercede? Then his own arm brought him salvation and his righteousness upheld him. He put on the righteousness as a breastplate and a helmet of salvation on his head. He put on garments of vengeance for clothing and wrapped himself in zeal as a cloak according to their deeds, so he will repay. Wrath to his adversaries, repayment to his enemies, to the coastlands. And, and there the coastlands is reference to the uttermost parts of the world. To the coastlands, he will render repayment. So when we look at this, we say, well, well who can save? Is there anyone who can save? And the, and the truth is, it's only one person, and it's God himself putting on flesh, coming in the person of Jesus. Now, in Colossians 2, we read about this. In 2 verse 13, it's one of my favorite sections of, of Scripture, speaking about Jesus being a king and a warrior. And it says, you, and you, and he's speaking about me and you and all of us, you who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh. So we're dead, right? Like we're, we're totally dead. We're not almost dead. We're totally dead in the uncircumcision of our, our flesh. God made alive together with him. Because what happens in the midst of the snaring that we have been you know, allured by and trapped in our own sinfulness, God made alive together with him, having forgiven us all of our trespasses 
But he not only forgives us of our trespasses, but he cancels the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. He disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. Now, this language that we're speaking of is language of Christ as victor, Christ as king who rules and reigns and destroys and defends us against all of his and our enemies. And it looks very similar to he puts on righteousness as a breastplate and a helmet of salvation on his head. Now, why does he put on battle armor? Because in the midst of Colossians chapter 2, he disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. So, brothers and sisters, where do we have salvation? It's only in the warrior king, Jesus, that we find salvation. Who not is only our warrior king, but he's also our priest and our prophet. He's also described as our friend. He's also described as our elder brother. He's also described as our redeemer and savior. Jesus is all of these things. He's all of these things. Now, in terms of application, I think that as we move to Ephesians chapter 6 and we think about the armor of God and we liken it to, to King Jesus, we need to ask ourselves, are we ready to go to war with the world every day we wake up? Are we ready to wrestle with sin? Are we ready to wrestle with the devil and our flesh and the world? And every morning, every morning, you know, my hope is that you will spend time in the Word of God and that every morning you will put on the helmet of salvation that you will know who you are in Christ and that you will put on the breastplate of righteousness rather than the spider webs of your own you know, making. <laughs> you Because know, really all we can do is spin webs and put on spider webs, but we need a breastplate of righteousness that we put on, not our breastplate that we make ourselves, but one that we are given through faith in Christ. And that we, we get ready because the onslaught of the world is coming at you. And if you don't believe it, you've already lost the day. And, and I confess this to you guys. Like There are days I wake up and I don't even think about this stuff. You know, I don't wake up and think about putting on the armor of God, but when I do, I am better equipped to live the day out. Or, or you know, it, it, it's just a silly example. If you've prayed, read your Bible, you know, and prayed for your children and your spouse, you are much more apt to give them the benefit of the doubt throughout the day. If you have not done that, if you have not put your armor on, then you will or be more susceptible to harming them with your words and with your actions, with your eyes and your attitude. <laughs> but I know that when I, we had small children, and I would pray for them and read my Bible, I was a much better parent to them. Of course, still true today. <laughs> like I'm a better husband, I'm a better father, I'm a better pastor, I'm a better friend as I put on the armor of God to defeat those things, again, the deceptive ideas that play to disordered desires within my flesh that are normalized in a sinful society. And I will tell you that in verse 15, that when truth is lacking and those and he who departs from evil makes himself a prey, you had better have your armor on to defend yourself 
and to advance. Now, the, the beauty of our salvation is, and, and this is um, what we find. It says in verse 18, it says, According to their deeds, so he will repay. Wrath to his adversaries, repayment to his enemies, to the coastlands he will render repayment. So who's going to fear the name of the Lord? Well, it's, so they shall fear the name of the Lord from the west and his glory from the rising of the sun. So basically, as far as the west and the east, right? The rising of the sun happens in the east, just so you know, sets in the west. So we're saying everywhere. And he will come like a rushing stream with the wind of the Lord as he drives, and a redeemer will come to Zion. Now, that idea that according to their deeds, so he will repay, that brings me to the idea of communion. The idea is this, is that according to your deeds, you will be repaid for all of your deeds. Everything that you do will earn you something. And all of your wickedness will earn you, in, um, for the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. And pray with me. Father in heaven, as we think about all that Jesus has done, Father, I pray, Lord, that we would worship him and be in awe of him and fall more deeply in love with him to the point where we cannot help but tell others about him. So, Father, may we sing with great joy about all that you have done. We pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.